Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Vina Jetty. Vina has over a decade of real estate experience in founding two real estate firms and acquiring and managing over $1 billion in assets throughout her career. She's the founding partner of Vive Funds and also a founding partner of Enzo Multifamily. In this episode, we talk about the current market trends in multifamily and the risks in the market that may give rise to an eventual affordability crisis. As an experienced operator and capital raiser, Vina is adamant about setting the right investor expectations, conservative underwriting, and prioritizing the LP experience. This is an important episode that comes at a time when cap rates are continuing to compress, interest rate hikes are imminent, and market forces are pointing to strong multifamily acquisition activity. What does this mean that you should look for as an investor? Well, listen to this episode to find out. Hey, Vina, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I know you're super busy and and jumping around. So I always really appreciate you making some time. And, you know, we reconnected last year on Clubhouse (laughs) of all places. And we had actually met way back in the day when I was at Patch of Land at maybe like the San Francisco conference, which might have been the first time I ever spoke on a panel. So like, you've (laughs) known me, like, I remember being on that panel. I had never done public speaking really before. And I remember thinking I must be purple. I'm so nervous. (laughs) I can't speak. I'm hyperventilating. (laughs) That's really funny. You could have fooled me because I did not notice that. So oh well, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People, people think it's like, it's like, I mean, I guess it's normal to me now, but back then I, you know, I kind of like jumped in, I'm like, sure, I'll talk on a panel. And there was like all these women and it was just the beginning of like, that was such an exciting time to like start an industry. It was. And you know, it's funny. I actually keep in touch from other people that I met at that conference too, even to this day. So yeah. yeah. Wild where you meet your connections. I know. I know. And then, and then when, when you like popped up on, on clubhouse, which now I don't really know if clubhouse is still a thing. It was like all the rage for about three months (laughs) in 2021, but yeah, I mean, I, I still get on it like once every couple days, definitely not as much as when it's addictive at first. And now I use it more sparingly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe people, we also kind of all were able to get out here and there to a different degree. I mean, I do miss the in-person. I really miss the in-person events and, and like seeing people and having that kind of, that kind of interaction. Me too. I can't wait to go back to normal life. (laughs) I know. And we were just saying like one of the, the, obviously like the big thing that we want to talk about is, you know, what you do. We were saying like, 
I, I don't know other than you, who I know better than, than, than most, but I don't know any women who transact at the GP level like you do. And so I want to just, you know, to talk about what you're up to, what you're seeing, you know, deal flow. We were kind of chatting a little bit about this before we hit record, but just in general, like, you know, you've built and scaled one company already that, you know, you're, you're kind of winding down or things, things are ending there. And then you have uh, vive, which has just been at least to me really growing. And I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what was the impetus to start Vive? Yeah. So it turns out I'm kind of a control freak. Who would have known? So I, I really rolled out what Vive to be able to have complete control and complete decision-making uh, powers in what we invest into, where we invest, what our strategy is. If we come in as LP capital ever or for JV equity. So all of those like structural decisions, everything I wanted to be able to control that. I also wanted to be able to really influence the direction of the company. So for me, one of the things that's really, really important is we, every decision we make at Vive starts and stops with LPs, right? How is their experience? What is their return going to look like? Is this going to impact them from the LP side? That's Every single thing we do is starts and stops there. So for me, I wanted to build a company around that LP investor focus. And I wanted to make sure we were investing, reinvesting dollars into the company to really enhance that experience, make it seamless, reduce friction along the investment process. Because, you know, when you're an LP investing in these deals, there's still some amount of paperwork that has to get done yeah. and you know, giving bank account information. And it's, it can be tedious and cumbersome and we want to really reduce that friction. Yeah. Yeah. And how is that, you know, how have you been finding, or like, what have you been finding that your LPs are, are looking for? I mean, there's this like dichotomy right now where it seems that everyone's doing deals and there's so much transactional activity happening. And yet there's, there's also not because people can't place their capital. So like, what are you seeing? Uh, Yeah, no, that's exactly what we're seeing. We're, like I said, we're not really doing a whole lot of deals. I'd like to do more deals. It's just really tough to find deals that we're willing to put our brand on or that we're willing to endorse. And LPs want to place capital. We have more capital than we have deals. So the issue isn't with raising the equity on these deals. It's really on the other side and finding the deals to raise the equity for more than anything. We're seeing, you know, cap rates are just crazy low right now. I don't know how much lower they can go, but I also said that two years ago when they were hitting like the mid fives low, like getting into the fours. And I was like, Oh, how much lower can caps go? And here we are in like a three cap environment. And I've seen deals trade at sub three caps. So it's been kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That pretty much parallels us. Right. Dan. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm I'm curious. I always like to ask this question of of people who are in this business, you know, what they think will happen to to prices and cap rates as rates, you know, tick up, right. We're, we're obviously starting to see that we've expected it for a while, but, but now it's actually happening. And you know, you listen to some people and they say, you know, there was historically a correlation between cap rates and interest rates, but it's more about the amount of dry powder than it is, you know, where, where rates are. Like, how do you think about all that? I think both are actually 
probably valid points. You know, my crystal ball isn't working that well these days. So I don't know actually where cap rates are going to expand to, but I do think we are going to see cap rate expansion. And I think actually 2022 is probably going to still be a pretty strong year for multifamily. I think we'll see the same level, if not more competition. I think more investors are looking for inflationary hedges. So multifamily is you know, prime income producing asset. And I also think with the tax changes to bonus depreciation kind of starting to taper off after 2022, we'll see more capital trying to influx into uh, multifamily in the U.S. It's obviously speculation. I So I do think there's still some room for them to maybe like decrease a little bit, but then I think we'll start seeing an expansion on cap rates and we'll see pricing. I don't know if we'll see it necessarily come down as much as we'll see it kind of stagnate and maybe drop a little bit slower. And I hope so, because I'd like to buy more things. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a discussion I feel like we're always having, which is, you know, as an owner, you know, it's nice when cap rates, you know, stay flat or they compress, particularly when, you know, you're in a value add strategy and, you know, you're, you're getting that higher multiple, but yeah. as we think about, you know, the medium to long-term, like you said, it'd be really nice for maybe cap rates to expand like 50 bips. A little, and, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, we still great returns on the deals we're in, but then, you know, it's much more attractive to to buy deals going forward. You know, we'll, we'll see, of course, if that plays out, but, you know, wishful <laughs> thinking maybe. I can only hope because I share the sentiment. I And I think too, that's where we're going to see a lot of operators, especially newer operators that are getting into this space now they're being fairly optimistic about exit caps. And so I always like to see in deals that we invest as LPs too, uh, my family does, and seeing cap rates expanding at, you know, a reasonable amount of expansion over a five-year, seven-year hold. I want to see that because I don't think cap rates will be here for the next five years or seven years. Yeah. So, so on like along those, like along those lines, actually, let's talk about the markets that you've been, that you've been investing in. I believe it's mostly Atlanta. Is that right? Yeah. We've done a lot of transactions in Atlanta over the last couple of years. We do underwrite in Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Arizona, but whatever reason, Atlanta has been kind of the place where we're actually winning the deals we need to, you know, we're not, we can't win on price in this market. And at the size of deals we're transacting on, we're winning on terms. And in Atlanta, you know, our brokers, they know us well, they know that we can close, they know that we'll perform and that we're relatively easy buyers to work with. Right. And what do you think, what do you think are some of the features of Atlanta that make it still a desirable market? I know it's experienced so much growth in the past, like thinking back to, to 2013, 2014, when I got started and people were talking about Atlanta and like the starting phase. So it's been growing for a while. It has. So we've seen a lot of population growth there, but what I really like about it more so than even just population growth is the diversity in job sectors. Mm. Uh, so I look at, there's some markets that are really good markets and they're growing, they're doing really well. There's a lot of money flocking to those areas, but there's not as much job diversity as I would like to see there. So some of those fundamentals I think are really important for our portfolio and kind of our investment criteria. We're also seeing, uh, we saw a lot of stability in Atlanta through COVID, which we obviously really like that. And we're also targeting assets that are in much more stabilized areas that are maybe a little bit newer vintage because I mean, right now pricing on 80s vintage is basically the same as 90s or early 2000s. So why go into assets that are that old for the same price 
That's a, wow. Sorry. That was, I'm really thinking about that, that, and it's hard. It's hard because you know, you can execute yeah. like you've been doing it for years and to see those prices. And like you said, like who, who is buying those at those prices? Is it just, is it just like people starting out or is it like big institutional capital that just doesn't care what the pricing is? I think we're seeing both. So I think we're seeing on the institutional side, I think we're seeing capital that's pretty aggressive. Their return expectations are a little bit lower. So I think we're definitely seeing that. I think we're seeing family offices that want to deploy capital, park it, and they just need something to generate a tax efficient return for them, even if it's a little bit lower. And then I'm seeing a lot of newer operator syndicators that are coming in and you know, we're losing deals like 70 million, $80 million deals to someone willing to pay like $5 million more than we can. And that's, you know, it's not a small Delta for that size of an asset. It's not like a billion dollar transaction where 5 million is like, okay, it's like a rounding error. Maybe right. uh, it's, you know, it's significant on a 70 or $80 million deal. So I think we're just seeing, uh, and I, I also will admittedly say that our underwriting is fairly on the conservative side. I think we probably can generate better returns or outputs on our underwriting than we do, but I'd rather under promise and over deliver as the adage goes. So do you think that we are on the horizon of, I guess, the need to reset investor return expectations? Like particularly, you know, over the last few years, I feel like the benchmark is just, it's crazy. It's unattainable. But, you know, the, the reality is there are, there is a lot of capital that needs, you know, a, a lower return. And, you know, this idea that like, we're going to generate, you know, 15% plus a year of, you know, tax efficient returns, like that's a benchmark that's nice to have, but it certainly shouldn't be a, a need to have when you compare it to everything else. And so how, how do you think about that? How do you communicate that, set the appropriate benchmarks with your LPs? Absolutely. Yes. I definitely think that there are way too many deals that are projecting out much higher returns than are likely to be generated, especially from newer operators, because, if you're buying at the top or near top of market, you probably haven't experienced a downturn market enough to be able to pivot quickly. Not every operator will be able to. So yes, I do think that expectations need to be reset. We've started resetting expectations two years ago. We started resetting expectations pretty significantly. So I actually faced a lot of that even on our last raise. I had a lot of investors that are you know, high income earners in other asset classes. And they're just using this as an alternative investment in their portfolio. And I had a lot of feedback that, okay, but I can invest in this 2019 build that's going to give me a 19% IRR. No, it, it is not. This is not a class B or class A environment where we're seeing a 19% IRR over a five-year hold. It's, we just are not in that environment today, unless you're assuming that everything goes exactly optimized, which is hugely risky. And so for what we do is we educate investors out of the gate. And I tell investors, I'm very clear with them. Listen, I'm not going to put a deal in front of you. That's going to 2X your money in three years. Those are not in our risk profile. We don't go after deals that have high risk, high reward. 
we go for those kind of like down the fairway, very, I always say I'm like a vanilla investor, right? It's like super boring. We do the same thing every time over and over and over, but our investors know what to expect and we adjust return expectations to the project. Right now, we're typically looking for anywhere between six and 8% cash on cash during the hold period. And then uh, because we play in the value add space, we do see a lot of our IRR and our AAR generated at the exit or after the value add is realized. Are you finding with the value add, what have you found with construction costs and and crews and such? It's tough right now. There is a shortage of labor. There is a shortage of materials. Costs are very expensive. What we found is the best way to get the efficiency is one, to bring it in-house where we have much closer oversight. Two, to be able to order in bulk. So realizing the scale of our assets. So being concentrated in Atlanta has actually served us very well in that regard because now we're able to order across all quarter of a billion that we have in the Atlanta market versus having to order, you know, five units at a time, 10 units at a time. But the labor shortage has been very tough. So we have made those adjustments to our underwriting. We increase our contingency costs. We increase our renovation timeframes. We also have increased our anticipation on what payroll would look like compared to what we normally can do. And so those are all adjustments we've already made because we are definitely seeing those changes. Yeah, that sounds to me. And for the, you know, for those listening, like when we talk about conservative underwriting, like this is, and like a sponsor that thinks about these things like this, like, this is exactly what we like to talk about when we like to tell investors, because like you said, and I've found this in, since I've been in the industry is that it's very easy to promote. It's very easy to say, oh, look at these great returns. And, you know, I see it a lot on LinkedIn. There's like little fire emojis and boom emojis and like, oh, look at my return and all this. And, you know, and, and, and that's like all well and good. Everybody wants to celebrate good returns and and we celebrate good returns too. But that boom can also go the other way when people are expecting that. And then even if they get like a good return, they, they, you know, it is that setting investor expectations. Oh, but I saw on LinkedIn that so-and-so got a whatever return. And, and that's, that makes it really hard when you see that. And right now everybody looks like a genius if they're selling. Right. Well, and it's funny that you say that. I was just talking to one of my investors yesterday about this. And one of the things that she was saying is if you say you're going to hit a 19% return, right? And you hit 18%, an 18% return is a great return, but the feedback is going to be they didn't hit expectations, they under delivered. Versus if you say you're going to give them a 17% return and then you hit an 18% return, oh my gosh, they did way better than expected. So I always tell, especially new operators, under promise, set it at the lowest possible bar. And if you do better, no investor has ever been mad at me for giving them more money than I told them I would ever. And so that's the, that phone call is a much more pleasant phone call to be making or receiving in this case. Like I, I had a return that we sent out last quarter and we sent it out 90 days ahead of time. And it was 33% above where we had said the first quarter or the first month of return was going to be. And I had a bunch of investors that emailed me. They're like, did something weird happen with my account? Cause I got a deposit from you. And it was like, nope, that is your first return for your investment. Congratulations. And they're like, oh, but it's more that, are you sure you calculated it right? I'm like, I promise we calculated it right. But you know, those are the types of conversations you want to be having. And like I said, there's a lot of new operators to this space now, and they don't really know 
until the market takes a turn or gets stagnant or pulls back a little bit, they don't really know what it's like until they're in it. And sometimes then it's too late. For us, our education to investors too right now is all around principal protection, like downside protection. That's what our main focus is today. It's not generating double digit returns or, you know, one and a half X, two X equity multipliers. It's around protecting principal and making sure that that principal is a minimum remaining the same. And then of course we try to just to promote returns after that and get returns after that. But the first thing we focus on is principal. So with all the the good that has come from you know, the access to real estate, private equity, especially for individual investors over the last, you know, let's say 10 years, give or take. I think one of the challenges now is that if you are a new operator and you want to be conserved in, in your projections, there's just too many people out there that are saying, you know, buy my 2020 class A and it's a, a deal level 35 IRR with the emojis. <laughs> and if you don't know any better, like that seems really interesting. And one thing we know as, you know, students of behavioral economics is that if you put out high returns, you know, people are more likely to invest in that deal, you know, in, in a vacuum thinking, well, if you miss on a 25 IRR, maybe it'll be a 20, but if you crush it on a 15, like you still may not get to a 20. I don't think people fully understand that, particularly the folks who are the ones being marketed to by these newer groups, right? Because, you know, the folks that, that you're probably going out to, that we spend our time going out to, they've been with us for a while. They understand us. We can go through the exercise of explaining, you know, why and where we're being conservative. But for someone new, like they probably don't have that, that luxury. And that's the challenge here. I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a challenge. And it's a challenge even with my investors that have invested with me before. They're asking me why I'm not generating as high of a return as X, Y, or Z person that they see on LinkedIn. I definitely think that this is a sign of the times almost. You know, I was in real estate during the last crash and I remember what it was like when it felt like everybody was giving real estate advice. And I feel like we're kind of starting to get back into that territory. Do I still think it's a great asset class? Yes, of course. And we buy through all points in the market cycle. But I think that what I see from our investors or our investor avatar and their behavior is we about 80% of my investors are in two or more deals with me. So I have a lot of repeat investors and they kind of know at this point that whatever we're putting out there is something that we really believe we can at least deliver at, at a minimum. So they look at our investments as like, this is kind of the floor of where they can expect versus the ceiling. And I think that really an educated investor is better for all of us. And I think that the challenge you have is when you have any one investor get burned in a project, and I don't just mean missing expectations by, you know, a couple of points or, you know, attuned to the market. I mean, like really getting burned by an asset or a sponsor or not having communication or just a bad experience overall, it ruins it for everybody because they'll never invest with anyone, no matter how great the sponsor is after that. And I think that that's a bigger challenge to overcome. And, and that's one of my concerns in this current moment in full transparency is that there's somewhat of a, a perfect storm in that, you know, even if you haven't been executing, meaning, you know, your, your NOI at the properties you own is, is not increasing, you're probably getting bailed out or have been getting bailed out by cap rate compression, and you're putting up really big numbers. 
And so then you're going out with that capital and you're reinvesting it into other deals at very high or very, sorry, very low cap rates, very high prices. And at some point when the market turns or you don't see that compression, like not only do you have people that are losing money, but you've had a lot of people who are now, you know, who genuinely believe these groups know what they're doing because they've been putting up 20 IRRs, you know, over and over again. And, and, you know, I'll give you a quick example. You know, this is the last self-storage deal we invested in, but, you know, the whole project underperform, 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 it sold as part of a portfolio. The NOI at the time of sale was about 45% below what was projected, right? But it sold as part of a portfolio at a 3-2 cap and our investors got a 30 IRR, right? And everyone's really happy about that, but that was a failure. Like that was not a well-executed transaction. And so I'm just, I am, I guess nervous might be the wrong word, but I'll use it about what's on the horizon for people who don't understand the difference between uh, market appreciation and execution-driven value. I totally agree with that. And I don't know how we really solve that problem because that requires a lot of intensive investor education that most investors don't want to know this much about cap rates if they're passive investors, right? Like, I mean, I think of it how I'm passively invested into other asset classes in real estate, right? Like, I don't want to know how your deal operates or not. I want to know, are you going to make me money or not? And Unfortunately, one is tied to the other, right? And so I agree with you. I think that we're a rising tide lifts all boats. We're seeing massive returns from operators that have been doing this for a very short period of time. And it's great that they are returning that capital to investors. But then you, to your point, you start seeing investors increase their stake, right? So maybe they put 50 or 100,000 in the first deal, and now they're at like 200, 300,000 into these deals. And we're in that perfect storm where, I mean, we cannot remain in this environment forever. And with interest rates rising, we know that we're probably going to see some amount of movement on cap rates and pricing. Yeah. And like we were talking about, that might not be a bad thing for bringing that pricing down a little bit, hopefully, so that it is more affordable and there is a little more wiggle room because at, at these prices, I mean, if you're not exactly executing on that on that NOI, I mean, like your margin for error is so, so thin. And then there's, there's no sign of costs coming down anytime soon either. So what do you think about also affordability? Like we're seeing, like we're seeing double digit rent growth posting everywhere. And I have a hard time discerning all of the economic data around what's, you know, what's going on. And, and yet people somehow are paying, like, who are they? How long are they going to be able to pay this much? Like, that's yeah. one thing that really worries me is like, how much more can rent growth go up before it tops out and crashes? I feel like you guys have been in my mind for like the last <laughs> few weeks because I've been having these exact same conversations. And honestly, for the last couple of years, what I kind of have been thinking or Hopefully I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. But I always thought that the next housing crisis is going to be around affordability. It's not going to be a bubble burst like we saw back in you know the 2007, 2008 time. It's really affordability because one, 
home prices are insanely expensive. And I realize the irony of me saying this in a value add space, but you know, we are, we are raising rents. We're seeing unprecedented rent growth on unrenovated units. I'm seeing the premiums we underwrote for on a post-renovated basis without renovating our assets. And so I do think it is a concern. I think that this is somewhere where if I'm looking at newer operators, newer sponsors, this is somewhere where I almost always see an error in judgment on the pro forma assumptions. And what I mean by that is I have seen a countless number of deals assuming that they are not going to renovate anything and they're going to bring rents up by $200 starting in month one. Okay. Well, if it was that easy and you could do that, why is your current operator not doing that? I need a very good reason for that. Secondly, I am seeing this is a conservative deal because we underwrote for 2X post-renovated rent on income. And I'm sitting here, 2X is not only not conservative and it's not just like, okay, it's like average it's like aggressive, right? We underwrite to a minimum of 3X on our post-renovated rent assumptions. And so we're really looking to, and we're deep diving into the market data to make sure that this area can well, can more than more than support the post-renovated rents that we have, right? So our last asset we went into had a median income of around $100,000. That means that they can roughly afford almost $3,000 a month in rent. The assets we're going into are not going to get near 3000 in rent in our, I mean, maybe they will when, because we own them and we'll push rents, but that's not part of our underwriting prediction. We don't need to get anywhere near that in order to fulfill our pro forma models. So I think that that's actually a really good spot. Like, especially if you're a newer investor or you're not very intimately familiar with how these deals work or assumptions are made. I think that's actually like one of the easiest areas to see who is really conservative and who isn't. That's a really good point. Yeah. I I think, I think the affordability is going to, I mean, it's talked about a lot and I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see how that really plays out this year. I mean, affordability on um, home purchases and Daniel and I talk about this a lot on, on like home purchases and, and rentals and also changing preferences about where to live and who wants to live where. I mean, we have such shifting demographics and then you have some people that say that we have a shortage of housing. And then you have others that say that we actually don't have a shortage of housing. And, and what I think, and this is also, we, we had an episode with Akil Patel, who's an economist who studies this 18 year real estate cycle is, you know, we have another few years where a lot of this that we're talking about is going to play out. And I personally think it's going to shake out a lot of operators who, um, understand dynamic markets such as this requires an even greater level of conservatism in projections and in underwriting, because should any of us end up holding these assets through any kind of a severe downturn, I want to hold it, right? I'm I'm good to hold until whatever time, rather than having to sell it because we were so far off the mark right? I mean, that's the one thing, the liquidity premium that we get for real estate is, is like all things being equal. I want to hold on to this thing. And so that's the way I'm approaching it. Yeah. Same. That's exactly what our thought process is. If we have to, we'll hold it. You know, obviously IRR gets thrown off then because 
the time value of money, but that, and that's again, where we go back to the focus on principal protection and we go back to just market fundamentals and being able to sustain through some kind of downturn like that. And I mean, I think we saw a lot of that through COVID too, where people who were really aggressively underwritten, especially in workforce housing and lower income areas started seeing the pressure of non-paying tenants and not having any kind of relief from that. And so we've shifted strategies and we started focusing on areas that have, you know, those higher tenant bases, those stable tenant bases, the tenant bases that really care if their credit score gets affected because they want to buy a house and they want to move out. We're almost like the last stop on the way to home ownership for a lot of our tenants. Um, we have one asset where we were in due diligence and one of our tenants, I had to take him out of our audit because he made a million and a half dollars a year. Like that's not our tenant. So like, right. in there, you skew all of our, our, what we know about our tenant avatar. So, you know, those are the types of assets we're going into for that reason, because I can hold that during a downturn. They're unlikely to lose their jobs. They're unlikely to not be able to afford rent if they're out with COVID for two weeks. So yeah. um, those metrics were really important to us as we are moving through a post COVID or a, a COVID known world. Right. Right. Yeah. It's hard to say right? like the whole, like normal, I always think like, there's no, there's no normal. It, it's like, it's one foot in front of the other. Like we're all making it work. And I know that we feel really fortunate that been very good for us and, and real estate has not suffered. Like everyone expected another 2008. And instead it's been a really good environment. I believe it will continue to be for, for strong operators. And, and so it's been, it's been great to have this conversation and, and, and like, we're so much on the same page with the underwriting and, and what we're doing. And I really appreciate your, your insights. Like it's, it's nice to, to have other experienced operators that, that are out there. And I do hope that you find some good deals. I hope that the, you know, the deal environment is kind to us all this year, because I want to see, I mean, I want to see more operators like you. I want to see you succeed. Thank you. And yes, I totally agree. I feel like you guys could have just talked and I could have sat here nodding the whole entire time. That would have been just as well as me saying what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and taking some time um, to be with us and we'll have a link to, to Vive in the show notes and also, you know, just wonderful to, to see you again and, and yeah, just want to say thank you. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.